0: It's time for another episode of the Amalyn's History of Rock and Roll, brought to you by Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com, and by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. And I'm here with my partner in crime, Marcus in the Darkest. Marcus the Honey Badger has reared his scary, ugly head again and gotten you to watch a movie you were reluctant to check out.
1: It wasn't that I was reluctant to check it out. It was that we had to get the Showtime subscription. And then once we got it, I got to check it out a couple of times. And I'm glad that the honey badger reared its head.
0: And Showtime, I want to thank you for that free optional month that you gave to Marcus and Kim. So, um, (laughs) The funny thing is we went through all that hand-wringing over it, and then I went on to YouTube, and there it is sitting there in its entirety it's okay it's all good man when you're putting together an episode of this podcast sometimes you have to go to all the corners of the universe for our resources and that seems to be what's happened here in regard to this film which was released last year and we want to talk about it uh, Showtime put it out it's called under the volcano
2: no time to count what time worth because I just left the planet
0: It is one of the best documentaries about a recording studio's history I've ever seen. Sadly, a double tragedy ends Air Montserrat, which was built and run by Sir George Martin in his post-Beatles period, Throughout the 1980s, a beautiful studio in an amazing, exotic setting.
1: It's a studio that has about 79 albums, of which you are probably familiar with at least 70 of them. There's no doubt in my mind because it's music that blew up in the 80s it's music
0: that has a special sound to it which we will get into marcus i think we've all checked album notes and seen air montserrat but never have we had a look inside how it came together what happened there and how it ended until now and i gotta give high fives way up high to australian director and writer gracie otto she just got it all used historic footage and made an amazing film about an amazing place.
1: Yeah, this island looks like it is one of those magical escapes. About 10 minutes in, I think my eyes were completely glued to the set, and that's because I had seen the beauty of this island. The video that they took, the water, just the whole energy even that came off of the people that you see on film pulls you in and it really made me want to go there
0: i'm feeling the same way and i don't care that they say the studio is in the excluded zone if i get there i'm going there and checking that out You know I am. And maybe we have to go together.
1: I'd go with you. And yes, I would go walk on the uh, rim of the excluded zone to check out that Air Montserrat studio and see. I'm
0: just getting a picture in my head right now. Hold on. I know. There we are trying to get to the studio. We're walking through that area where it's all covered in silt. And there we are, two assholes up to their armpits in the stuff going, okay, now we're stuck in the mud. How do we get out of here? That would be you and me. We'd get ourselves stuck there somehow. Uh, Yeah.
1: We need help. Can you pull us out? What? We always need help. Yeah. Yeah. True.
0: But I want to start at the beginning of the film because it's kind of the end. They kind of pan in over the water and right up onto the island as it is today, post volcanic destruction divided down the middle, literally by this uh, volcano, which is always looming and always was there people who lived there loved it they never thought much about it they had a sulfur spring nothing big right yeah but in the end it caught them all off guard and we'll talk about that as we get down to the end of our story in some clouds of superheated ash called pyroclastic flows roared down the mountain sides at nearly 70 miles per hour incinerating everything in their path
1: Yes, and Sting made some very interesting points about that volcano and how the constant flow of ash from the top of the volcano really fertilized the island to make it as lush as it was. And when you see the drone video and some of the old airplane video of the island from above, it seriously looks like a lost island that's different than any other place.
0: You mentioned Sting, and he's one of the many voices that are represented in this film. And he's one of the people who fell in love with the island. And it leads to a historic moment in rock and roll later in our story today. It's all about Under the Volcano, the documentary about Air Montserrat, which was built inside an existing resort. George Martin was looking to expand his horizons. As he became free of EMI, he built a studio in Oxford Circus, right in the middle of London, bustling London. Yes. And then for contrast, on the other side of it, he wanted to go somewhere that people could go to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. And he found this estate in Montserrat, and the quest began. Can you imagine when it Neves, where they build the boards that go in the sound studios back then? They get the order for three special custom boards. One has to be shipped to this little island all the way out by Antigua. What?
1: (laughs) I know. That's absolutely crazy. One of the things that stood out to me about George Martin when he was building the studio is... How everybody described him as the opposite of Phil Spector. Phil Spector was an intense person who controlled every single note and half note and quarter note of every movement. If your hand moved during the recording, he controlled that. And then you had George, who was completely the opposite, a gentleman who made everybody around him better. That was his whole thing. Other
0: people's happiness. According to Giles, his son, he was driven by other people's happiness. And it shows, if you think about George Martin and what he did in his life, the other thing that he does here, or they did here, and this is where you got to give high ups for Gracie Otto. They included footage of George with the Beatles. And there's some commentary from John Lennon. That's very telling about George in the movie as well, but there's actual work footage and it probably got lost in the shadow of Peter Jackson's massive release last year, but it's very insightful stuff about how things went and how he contributed without taking more than his producers share. In the studio with the Beatles,
1: there was a scene where he was working with Paul McCartney that just blew me away, and it showed his gentle nature mm-hmm. when they were playing the notes and going da 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 da. And he was like, "Well, why don't you da da, 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 da or da da, da 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 there?" And Paul was like, "Oh, da da da, da And he played. Is it this the another piano. situation where we meet
0: the musicians to come in and interpret what the hell you're saying?
1: Absolutely, we're definitely <laughs> going to have to have the musician translator for these moments, but. Seriously, it was mind boggling to me to see them
0: process. create those moments.
1: Yeah. And and to see how that came whatever they were working on came together because of the D D D D's and the hey, go up here, lift it here, drop it here. And they knew from working together when when they were the Beatles how he worked. So Paul knew his language completely and understood him.
0: You're talking about his work on tug of war, which was done at Montserrat. And that's also part of the story. We could talk about it now because it's pretty amazing. If you think about it, none of the Beatles, not because they didn't like George, but because they wanted to do their own thing, all decided not to work with him as a producer in their solo years. Okay. And that included Paul. And all these years go by and McCartney's starting to think it might be fun to go check out Montserrat and all the things that uh, would be associated with that, including having George involved they really have a great way of showing you these things in the movie like the telex coming in telling them that Paul McCartney's coming and it underlines how little communication there really was in the world back in 1979 80 in the middle of preparations for McCartney's arrival something terrible happens Marcus John Lennon's murder
1: this evening John Lennon arrived at the emergency room at the Roosevelt uh, Hospital he was dead on at the time of his arrival Numerous resuscitative efforts were made after his arrival in the hospital, including transfusions, surgical procedures, other procedures, but in spite of the effort of many physicians and after many procedures, we were unable to restore the life of Mr. Lennon. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tom Brokaw. This is today, December 9th. I'm here with Jane Pauley, and this entire half hour will be devoted to the murder of John Lennon, ex-Beatle, one of the best known musicians and most influential people of his time.
2: Good evening. It's almost 24 hours since John Lennon was murdered and people are still outside his apartment house tonight. They want to share their shock and grief and pay him tribute. John Lennon was a unique singer and a songwriter and he and the Beatles almost seemed to speak for an entire generation. As he changed over the years, so did his fans. Most would say thank you to the man who put his brand of music in our lives, but Last night, one fan wanted to take that music from everybody with
0: a gun. And there was question of whether McCartney was going to make it or not. And thank goodness that he did, because some of the most amazing things that ever happened at Air Montserrat happened during those sessions. First off, Paul McCartney's coming to town. And there's that moment you mentioned when he and George are sitting at the piano. I was interested in working
1: with George Martin again. Um, So I just telephoned him and asked him if he wanted to do it. And he was interested. We were very apprehensive about it to begin with. Both of us, I think, because, um, although we've been very good friends over the years, not having actually had to have the hassles of working, uh, we were all a little bit not sure about it. But in fact, coming together again was really a great joy. I he was the first record producer I ever worked with with the Beatles and um, working with him now he's uh, it's very easy for me Because I know him so well. We've got so much in common. We we know how we work. And he
0: starts talking to him about this song he has, Ebony and Ivory. I'm the ivory. I need an ebony. And it's like, well, who would you like to have if you could? And he says, Stevie Wonder. (laughs) So they get on the phone with Stevie Wonder because George Martin could probably get anybody on the phone, right? And Stevie says yes. So he's coming down to Montserrat. All mind blowing. Yes, the
1: pictures they show of Stevie Wonder that they have from his time there were just
0: incredible, and including the first time I ever saw Stevie without glasses, without shades on, eyes open, having a fucking blast, partying his ass off with Paul and all the people at this bar. The the story about going to the bar is incredible because they're like, we want to go out, we want to blow off some steam, so uh, they're guy from the studio calls down to the bar and he says hey is your piano plugged in he goes yeah but we're gonna close i wouldn't do that man is what he says right i
1: wouldn't do that if i were you i wouldn't do that
0: because it's just so amazing to just see stevie wonder so loose and having fun Uh, and the people there in the town near the studio obviously realize what's going on paul mccartney and stevie wonder are hanging out and it's at their neighborhood bar yes
1: and the vibe of these people was unbelievable because to them they were just the musicians they heard on the radio to the people of montserrat if you were a cricket star or a football player You were it. But yeah, if you were a musician, you were just the guy on the radio or the people on the radio that we were singing and dancing to. And to hear the people of the town tell the story from their perspective was wonderful. They had a chef named George who who cooked for everybody, and he was Captain. incredible, and he shared some great moments with the bands as well, which you have to see. The housekeeper, Manetta Allen Francis, had some wonderful moments to share as well, and it sounds like the people who worked there in all aspects were really part of the whole process. Songs were even written about some of these people.
0: Not just the people who worked at the studio, but the people from the town—they felt like they were part of the whole process. We can jump to the very end of the film for Danny Sweeney, the guy who invented the dance that is the Walk of Life. Right? Oh yeah! I couldn't believe it, man. When I heard that story, I was like, "What?" Little Marcus, here's this one oh, because yeah. it's how should happen or or when elton john is there and everything's not quite going you know that well and everybody's smoking weed and the whole control room weed clouds and all that and everybody's like oh what the hell's going on here nothing's going everybody's down for the count and one of the guys yells i'm still standing boom Bernie writes it, Elton makes it music, and it brings them back. It brings the original Elton John band back on Too Low for Zero, one of the definite highlights of the movie, because they really talk to Elton about it a lot. They talk to the band members. And Ray Cooper, one of my favorite interviews in this movie, he's the one who said when he heard a tape of something, oh, that was recorded in Air Montserrat. He could hear it. He could hear it. The space between. He could hear it.
1: The fact that he was able to hear that space between the notes says a lot about his skill as a studio musician because he was the guy that they would send the tapes back to to do guitar dubs and extra session work, and they would have to fill in whatever needed to be done, and then, and that's where he would hear it between the notes.
0: I want to talk about some of the high-profile things, but some of the things that happened that were important to the studio and them being a business aren't necessarily like the stuff that's on the front headline of what happened at Air Montserrat. And a lot of it's not included in the film, Marcus, like the fact that Rush did two albums there, Power Windows in 85 and Hold Your Fire in 88 now you know and i know the story of rush pretty well can you imagine all their trekking all over the globe and everything that they've done just unplugging twice and going down there does it affect the vibe of their band on those records
1: everything in montserrat affects the vibe of the album there and duran duran even noted that they felt that air montserrat wasn't the right place for them because they didn't want that vibe as much as they wanted something more high energy and jet set to go with where they were at the time because they were trying to actually climb past the police.
0: Yeah, he mentions that. Nick Rhodes, by the way, gives one of the best interview sets. And the editing, including him and his comments, very important. And he does a great job of explaining how they recorded some bits there. And while some of the guys were having way too much fun with the water sports and the pool and the atmosphere and all that. And even considering that they'd gone there to escape the scene that he describes where you got paparazzi in your hedges trying to take pictures of you in your underwear at home. That's how popular Duran Duran was at that time. So they saw it as a getaway, but maybe they got too far away. They had a lot of success with that album. Basics were done there, but they finished it back in London, right?
1: Yes. They had to get back to the noise and the bustle and the hustle.
0: (laughs) The hum. Yes, the hum of the city. It's funny because I'm reading Thoreau, and he talks about that hum even in his time in the 1800s. But it's definitely palpable in london 24 hours a day there's no end to the hum there and some of the other groups that did their records there like the first album was made by the climax blues band not a band that really did big business but they had that huge hit couldn't get it right right yep,
1: absolutely i remember listening to that song many hundreds of times on the
0: radio as a child and also this one from those sessions in montserrat i love you
1: When I walk- Younger man, I hadn't a care. Fooling around, hitting the town, growing my head. You came along and stole my heart when you entered my life.
0: Also recorded there, Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe in 1989, and I didn't feel anything markedly different in the sonic nature of their music on that album from what they might have done if they were doing it in London, but I'll bet you Rick was relaxed in that Chase Lounge. No, you know he was. Sabbath recorded Eternal Idol there, orchestral maneuvers in the dark to their junk culture records cool stuff and what a great place to work for alternative bands or metal bands right
1: i agree and Cheat trick did all shook up there earth wind and fire recorded and their story was uh, highlighted a little bit and under the volcano and they actually wrote a song after the uh, driver let me talk because he kept yeah. saying every time he wanted to say something he would jump in and say let me talk
0: without expectations got a superstar greeting from people that they wouldn't have expected to know who they were something I never knew was that Eric Clapton's Behind the Sun album produced by Phil Collins was made there
1: whoa I did not know that either
0: and I saw Nazareth
1: on the list I did not realize they had recorded there
0: that one album from Mike and the Mechanics was made there
1: the Little River Band
0: recorded there of course they did it's a perfect setting for Yacht Rock dude
1: Ha ha ha! Point
0: taken. What about Gene Easton? I don't think I'm surprised to see that because it's a great studio and a great getaway. And one of the projects that happens in the '80s, in the middle of it, talk is cheap from Keith Richards and the expensive winos, actually leads to what becomes the final project at Air Montserrat with the return of the Rolling Stones. They hadn't done anything through most of the 80s. record man he loved Caribbean he used to go to Antigua all the time he probably found this studio and went fuck this is where I gotta go
1: oh totally you know he did and George the chef told a little funny story about the Stones being there saying they drank a lot they smoked a lot and they ate a lot but they were good fun
0: and one of the guys talks about them looking for weed somebody says something to one of the kids and 10 minutes later he's back with the whole bush Out of his family's garden. Uh, That's the kind of stuff that went on there because they were off the grid, man. You're off the grid. Keith loved being off the grid when he was on his solo joints. Some of the surprising people, though, who went there. Boy George. That surprised me a little bit. Lou Reed on the beach. They even put him in the film going, I don't know, man. gone to too much sunshine.
1: Yep. And he did. He said that. He said, I, he goes, I need the sounds of New York. I need the sounds of traffic right. or something like that. So he was one of the artists who did not have a good experience at Air Montserrat.
0: Well, not everybody did. And we're going to get to that after the break. But I do have to say, it was mislabeled as Deep Purple, although they were both members. Ian Gillen and Roger Glover did a Gillen-Glover record there. And not only did they love the album they made, even though it didn't do big numbers, they say it was one of the greatest experiences they've ever had. In their lives So I think that's Pretty high shelf praise One of your favorites Midge your Love this joint Did solo records there They worked with Ultravox there Daltrey There's a great picture Of him in the film On the beach With I think It's his son During the McVicker days And that was One of his first Solo projects That he did The
1: Stray Cats Did a record there And
0: Yeah Slim Jim Phantom Talked to us about that Recently when he was Our guest here On The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll They didn't let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of people were in the film, and I looked at the long list of who'd recorded there, and they didn't call or reach out to a lot of people. So Jim shouldn't feel slighted. We still love you, Jim. Time to stop up and hear from our sponsors. But when we return, more about life under the volcano, and it's sad, two-punch ending at the hands of Mother Nature. Really, that's what's next.
1: On the imbalanced history of rock and roll.
0: Ho, 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 Marcus. It's that time of year at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. Time for Santa's arrival and all the joy and yuletide cheer all in one place there as the holiday season gets into full swing at Crooked Eye.
1: Ray, I know you get totally stoked for the holiday season, and we know that people like to gather with their friends, with their family, and Crooked Eye right in the heart of Hapro, a Great place to gather for the holidays. They have a great selection of beers, they have their s- local spirits, they've got food, live music, all the stuff that makes a great gathering place.
0: And here in the holiday season, they are setting up the celebration of 10 years of pouring the cure for what ails you right there at York and Montgomery and Hapro, coming up in February. Ten years of Crooked Eye, and in March it's five years of us as a podcast, believe it or not. And they've been with us almost since the very beginning. So we go together at the 5 and 10 celebration coming up in the new year. Things to look forward to in 2024, but really we just want to thank Paul and Paul and everybody there at Crooked Eye. Uh, for their support this week and every week for forever, basically. And wish them all a very happy Yuletide season, and we'll see you soon. Don't forget, if you're
1: looking for a great place to get together with a friend or family, Crooked Eye, in the heart of Hathbrook.
0: We're talking about Under the Volcano, an incredible documentary on Showtime. Uh, kudos to them for doing it, Marcus, in the first place, to make a documentary to preserve and promote what happened here. One of the things I want to talk about before we get too far down the line was the fact that Danny Sweeney, who was the guy who heard Walk of Life start doing the dance in the studio when Dire Straits was in the studio, he's the one who predicted to Mark Knopfler that it was going to be a huge hit. Boy, was he right about that he taught sting to windsurf during one of the police sessions there
1: he became friends with sting because sting was super excited the fact that this man taught him something that he had never known before and sting's the type of guy who if if you can teach him something he's your guy he's you've got respect from him
0: and the thing is sting may be the biggest proponent of this place and work being done there they did Ghost in the Machine with the police, and it took them to a whole nother level, right? Every little thing she does is magic. According to Copeland, Stu Copeland said that they were just so frustrated, and they just went at it said, just, just, just throw everything you have, all your energy at it. And that's the take they got that they kept for the record. So they liked it there, and Sting liked it there. And they were in the middle of the recording heyday, so they didn't know what was coming in the future. So they decide to come back and do another album there as the police synchronicity and that as we know didn't turn out so well
1: they had some pretty intense moments during the recording of ghost in the machine to get them to synchronicity they were recording in separate rooms because they weren't getting along they were yelling at each other through the microphones and the monitors there was a lot of tension
0: are you and, kidding? At one point, they're doing an interview, and they they start beating each other up with uh, Andy sitting between them, Stu and Stinger, like, throwing shit and punching yeah. each other. And they even, like, said, hey, how would you like to see me throw a iced tea? And, you know, What yeah. the hell, man? That's oh, yeah. how bad it was. It was open warfare.
1: Andy Summer's wife called him during the recording sessions and asked for a divorce during that time as well, wow. and that just added to the negative energy. And, it won- and
0: he added that they were all by the end of that album in the middle of divorce proceedings. Yes.
1: Their interviews were fascinating. One of them shared a story of how they wanted George Martin to produce the record, so Andy Summers trekked (laughs) across the island to have tea with George, and George basically said, I think you can sort it out. You are grown-ups. Wow. That there, I think, is what blew me away about George Martin. And that's when watching it the second time and circling back, I paid a lot more attention to the George Martin influence on everything and how his wisdom, how his wisdom, wisdom but just his presence, his aura, changed everything. And it was totally in sync with the island from what it sounds like.
0: I think it was influenced by the vibe of the island. You're right. But it was also who he was. Like, he was a
1: manch through and through.
0: Well, they may have had some personal issues, but they do come back for synchronicity, which turns out to be their swan song and maybe their biggest album, Marcus. By the end, they were all ready to run, except for Sting, who decided to stick around, take a holiday and, and, and be on the island. He'd made a lot of contacts and friends, so he had places to go and things to do. And in roles, Mark Knopfler and the guys from Dire Straits with Neil Dorsman, who does a great job of telling stories inside the documentary. He was their producer for Brothers in Arms, and he talks about getting set up, and that's when the Walk of Life story with Danny Sweeney comes up. I guess on satellite, they were watching MTV, and he remembered the police on, you know, the little promos between the videos going, i want stings mtv i want Stuart's mtv not having anything of mine yeah so he thinks he can make that work like by pitching it a certain way and inserting it in the song and he says something to neil like man if i could only get sting he says hold on man he's here on the island on holiday that is exactly as sting put it later being in the right place at the right time it is historic in nature totally by chance and that happened on Montserrat,
1: and not only that, Sting thought the song was ridiculous and wouldn't be a hit. Yeah. It was his wife Trudy who was like, yeah. "That song's going to be a huge hit," and he was like, "Nah, that song's too ridiculous." <laughs>
0: and then they. Showed... I wonder if Trudy collected on that bet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, in a tantric way, she did.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Elton John because you know this band that he had together pretty amazing in their heyday their first burst of elton john music together right uh davy johnstone Dee murray uh you got uh, nigel olson ray cooper all working with elton like a machine and he and bernie taupin were writing like crazy but they'd hit a wall elton had some real issues there in the middle to late 70s so they go there we're going to get away from it all we're going to see what happens what happens is too low for zero and i think he comes back for another go-round too Elton loved the place.
1: Don't wish it away, don't look at it like it's forever Between you and me, I could honestly say that things can only get better for you.
0: at the end of the day, when the staff would all go to the bar and the artists would go to their bungalows or their rooms or whatever, one day Elton's like, where are you guys going? They're like, we're going to go to the bar. Well, let me come to the bar. He started to get to feel like a regular guy while he was there because not only... Were the people who worked at the studio part of the projects, the people of the town and the island started to become part of the projects songs are getting named and all kinds of neat stuff's happening because of the way that the town nearby views the studio and the artists who are coming to it
1: yeah the studio and the artists built a great relationship with the people of Montserrat which was beautiful it was very synchronous it was very harmonious and the people coming to this island respected the culture and that was the most important thing that they could have done
0: Another person who is interviewed prominently in the film, Marcus, is Jerry Beckley from America. I don't know if you remember, but after their initial burst, he was looking for projects, George Martin was, and he connected with them because they were Air Force brats who were raised in London. They were spending a lot of time there, so they connect with him. And building off their early hits, make some of their biggest records with George Martin at the helm.
1: Yeah, at the beginning, Sister Golden Hair ripping through, I was just taken back to my childhood right away
0: and beckley does a great job of talking about the studio with love and affection and and talks about the process that they went through at that time and what it did for them and what george did for them you can tell the reverence with which he's regarded
1: oh absolutely everybody had high reverence for george
0: one of the people who saw him as the regular guy that he wasn't was his wife And she's in there a couple times in the documentary, including a point where she's talking about how it's time to let it go back to what it was after everything's said and done. And and isn't that really the nature of everything? Lady Judy Martin. And one of the most touching things that really got me the first time I saw it, she's talking in a little gold plaque. With George Martin's name appears like it's on like the doorway or something of the studio. And it just hit me like, man, the man gave us so much. And then he gave us so much more. Come on, man. You I wouldn't know. want to record at a studio where you could do a take, run out, jump in the pool, grab a beer, go into the kitchen, get a sandwich, and go back and do another take? That are would you, be so much fucking fun.
1: Are you kidding? I would be there for six months recording if that were the case. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think Jimmy Buffett almost moved there. It was the seventh album recorded at Montserrat, and he'd heard all about it. Jimmy, he loved to record, but he hated to leave his atmosphere. He hated to go to Nashville or or London or New York to record. So when he heard about the studio that Martin had built, he wanted to go check it out. And there they are. They pull up and, wow, look at that fucking volcano, man. He couldn't believe it. They got to work making the record, and he saw it as a lovely working environment because you know buffett's the kind of guy who has a biplane you know the kind of can land in the water yeah and he's also got a houseboat and he'd live on his boat he hated the, the the mainland life when they went to air montserrat they didn't have the title for the album which became volcano how can you not mm-hmm. make an album about the volcano when you're jimmy buffett recording in the shadow of the motherfucking volcano
1: and not only that he was one of the guys that was talking about man this volcano is gonna blow one day what are they gonna do and i
0: don't know
1: and then he wrote (laughs) this hey
0: i don't know what the fuck they're gonna do if this volcano blows that was what should have written but hey he 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 loved it there and um he didn't like some of the colonial aspects of the place like he tells about the story when they're in the bar and the way they handle ordering drinks on a British colony and yeah. stuff like you know with the, the little tab and the cup and all that stuff and he makes a comment to the guy really this is kind of slowing us down how about if I just buy the whole fucking bar yeah. <laughs> I just so love Jimmy Buffett for
1: stuff like that you know that's so Jimmy Buffett the band
2: ordered scored on the home everything
0: Seems to be and I love the interview with uh, Verdine White. Oh. He was awesome, man. He goes, "We're from Chicago. We don't do volcanoes." Yes, but he said they really liked the fact that there was no clock and no hurry when they made their faces album. Double when they thought they were going to go to make a single. And they also wanted to get back to the music aspect
1: of it because he said they were musicians first, and he really, really wanted to get back to playing the music that they had played in the early days. And it's a beautiful record.
0: We were talking about McCartney going there and recording with Stevie Wonder and Tug of War. One of the things that makes you go, what? Is that the guy sitting at the bar who's telling stories mentions how after Paul left, they all went up to St. George's Hill, waved to the plane as it pulled away. And then went, okay, let's go get back to work because they had no days off in the year 1981. That's how busy the studio was.
1: I saw that and I was like, man, what a great year for music. But boy, those guys worked hard.
0: So the Stones, they finally kiss and make up. Keith was really the only one who was in love with the Caribbean, but he convinced the others to come to this place where they could avoid all the distractions, all the traps, right? And just get down to recording together. And that's what they do. And they tell a great story about it, too. It's the album that became Steel Wheels. And in the middle of it, Keith Richards is uh, talking with Mick about something in one of the songs. And their managers, who are mentioned and are people that I know, uh, come in uh, to see how it's going, say. And one of the guys makes a comment to Keith about what to do with one of the songs. And he goes into a bag of his and comes out and throws a knife and it lands in on the chair right between the guy's legs. He says, no one tells the Rolling Stones what to write or something like
1: that. How to write a song. He says, yeah, no one tells how to write the write Stones song. how to write a song.
0: You know, that guy's got a great story, although Peter didn't really need any more stories about his amazing career in the music business. But that's one of those moments when you get called out by a member of the Rolling Stones. And the footage in the film does a great job of showing how they actually do it. There's a couple spots where they show... Mick and Keith working things out together, and I think that's really important because of what, sadly, happens next. The Stones finish up. Everybody's happy. Everybody's glad to be getting back to it and see what happens next. They even show a little bit of the Stones announcing their next tour. Mm -hmm. And then comes Hurricane Hugo. It was really bad for the whole Caribbean and the whole island. But what happened at Air Montserrat was endgame. What? Well, it killed the studio.
1: It completely killed the studio. And the weird thing about right before Hugo hit, the Stones didn't trash the studio and they are notorious for trashing studios when yeah, they yeah. finish Eves their Robinson recordings. Tells the story, yes. right? And then they were like, He didn't trash the studio and then seriously as soon as they left, boom, Hugo hit.
2: It's the most fearsome hurricane in the Caribbean in ten years. Hurricane Hugo has devastated several islands, including the Virgin Islands, and has ripped into Puerto Rico with undiminished fury. Hugo hit the eastern tip of Puerto Rico with a 125-mile-an-hour punch of winds accompanied by torrential rains and a tidal surge of at least six feet, quickly knocking out all power on the island. Sunday, the hurricane ripped through the U.S. and British Virgin Islands with 100-mile-an-hour winds and rains that caused severe flooding and destroyed scores of homes. The failure of electric power has left communications with the islands almost non-existent. And the lack of news has left many people with loved ones in the Caribbean close to despair. Ana Muñez is one who is very concerned. I
1: mean, it's my homeland, and uh, it's my people, and you don't know, and you're you're waiting anxiously, even if you don't know half of the people there, but you want to know that everything is okay, and, this, and you know. You And six weeks after the hurricane hit, there's audio and video of uh, George Martin walking through Montserrat and telling the story of how they knew it was destroyed and completely over because they opened the piano. The ivories were covered in green mold completely. It's painful because it used to be such a fantastic place. So full of activity with great people. We used to work in the studio. In the evening, we would sit down to dinner, and as many as 24 people would be sitting down and having a nice
0: meal. And um, we worked hard and we played hard, and made some great records there. And I saw some footage where they're taken out. I guess they took the neves board and some of the other pieces out that they could salvage, but a lot was left as it is, and the devastation of the island, then and then after the volcano blows. Just unbelievable. Can we talk about our kindred sister in Montserrat life? Yes, Rose we, Willick, Sister Rose. Yes, Sister Rose Who is Rose on Rose. their Little Island radio station down there. She is interviewed extensively. And she underlines radio's role in a disaster. Yep. Anyone listening in the terrestrial radio world of America? Hello? Rose Willick sat through all of it. She was on the air through the hurricane. She was on the air through the volcano, encouraging everyone to be calm and stay safe. Unfortunately, fortunately, not many people, considering the violent volcanic eruption on the island, lost their lives compared to the 12,000 people who were in the path of the sludge that cut that island literally in half. Yep. Sister Rose, is pretty cool though, right? She was one
1: of my favorite characters from the island, without a doubt. Her talking about the importance of live radio and how she kept telling the people, stay with me. You stay with me. We will be okay. That shows the power of radio. We've been fortunate not to have disasters at that level. So far. So far. It stresses the importance of live and local radio
0: i want to point everyone to nigel Olsen's comments when they were interviewing him a man who had everything kind of lost it all and then got it all back because of that place and that time that we were talking about with elton john earlier
2: he's
0: he's brimming in tears When talking about the studio with so much love and affection, it was really hard to watch. In some ways, it was the hardest stuff to watch other than the panic of the citizens during the volcanic eruption. Yeah. And that's the kind of affection. That was created between artists and that environment, and thereby with all of us, because the artists connected us to the place. In some cases, we didn't even know that's where it was coming from.
1: I thought Mark Knopfler was very interesting throughout that and had made some great points about the recording studio and the process. And usually, he's curmudgeonly when he speaks and he was warm and he was gentle and you could tell that even I though think he
0: was speaking from the heart man that's yeah, how he really felt about that place in that time to see
1: that sensitive soft side of Mark's really nice
0: we didn't really talk enough about Knopfler his words start the whole thing off and uh his role was central to making everything work in in that time with brothers in arms and dire straits and everything that was going on there at the studio right down to the inclusionist sting that was him so an amazing place an amazing time and i think it's great that they documented it because one by one we're already starting to lose the people who were in that film their words and their emotions about a special place to make music and record it will be forever remembered because of Gracie Otto, who did an amazing job of writing it and putting it all together and telling the story. And the artist she went to to get them to tell her their stories about life under the volcano. Wow. We're going, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> get the get the pontoon boat up. Tell the girls. Yep.
0: We're going to Montserrat. Pack your bathing suits. First thing that Maurice is gonna say is, okay, which side are we landing on? <laughs> the safe side. Listen, if you've ever been to Montserrat or you've ever partied with Keith Richards or anything else that might come to mind from the stuff we've been talking about, because my brain is just going boom, boom, boom right now. Uh, feel free to email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com and tell us what you think about the movie. Go check it out. Let us know if you've watched the film and what you think about it too, because I love hearing from our audience.
1: Me too. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, on Twitter at HistO, and we're also on Instagram at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.
0: We're on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And thanks for spending some time under the volcano with us today on The Imbalanced History
1: of Rock and Roll.